See, I don't know if, if you noticed, you, know, you taught us that new song. And then, of course, this one is very familiar to many of us. And the, the volume level of people singing was very different. You, you might not have been out there. It was very, very different. And that works really well for what I'm going to say in my sermon. So thank you. You proved a point for me before you even knew that you were doing it. Here we go. We are right now in the middle of a series, have a few more weeks, where we're talking about the tale of two kings. So, oh, and by the way, we have some new projectors that are going in this week. We're hoping they will be much brighter. Because trust me, on my computer, whenever I do this, everything looks wonderful. It's only when we come in here that things change and colors change. So we'll see if you notice any difference next Sunday. How about that, all right? Here we go. The, what we're doing is we're comparing and contrasting the two kings of Israel, Saul and then David. And of course, what we were talking about over the past few weeks, and the first king of Israel was not Saul or David. The first king was God. He was king over the nation. Then he would establish rulers, things like that, what called judges. And then the people got a little upset with that. They didn't want a, this invisible God. They wanted a human God that they could touch like all the nations around them. And God said, all right, if that's what you want, that's what you get, but you won't like it. And of course, he was right. And so the very first king that is uh, chosen by God is Saul. And that doesn't work out really, really well. And so there's another king that's actually chosen while Saul is still alive named David. Now, what we've learned about both of these guys is, first of all, they're actually very similar. They're both from very humble homes. Neither one sought the throne. Both of them messed up big time, big time. It isn't that Saul's sin was different. I mean, they're terrible. And yet one of them is wiped from the planet, Saul. And one of them, his house and line is established forever. The house of David, the line of David, the star of David, even the Messiah comes from the line of David, not the line of Saul. And yet both of them messed up big time. So here's where the whole crux of this matter is, and this is where the whole series is really trying to get us. Remember this, that, that Saul's heart was for his image, his status, and his standing, and David's heart was for the Lord. Saul was all about looking good to other people, the power that he could get, the prestige that he had from being king. David didn't care about that stuff, at least not very often. Most of the time, his heart was just set for the Lord. It doesn't mean that he didn't mess up. Of course he messed up. But his heart was for the Lord. And so this gave us our first clue on the two differences, I mean the difference between these two, why one was wiped from the planet, one was established, and here it was. This was a couple weeks ago, remember? God is interested in direction, not perfection, and all of you should go, Yes, that's wonderful, because probably none of us were very perfect this week. But God is not all that interested in your perfection. It was your direction. Where's your heart? Who do you want to live for? That's what, you're, that's what he's talking about. What direction are you going? Are you going towards him, and while you're going towards him, you mess up from time to time? Okay, that's one thing. Or are you going for your own image and prestige and power, and you mess up? Well, that's a completely different thing. The problem is the direction, not perfection. All right? So then, uh, and this is what the scripture says, after removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. There it is. He didn't say, I found David, son of Jesse, a perfect person who never sins. He said, I found him to be a man after my own heart, and that's what I'm looking for. Saul wasn't a man after my own heart, and he was rejected. David is. Now, last week, we looked at those imperfections, okay? So the first week we realized that you don't have to be perfect. It's your direction, not your perfection. But what do you do with those imperfections? They happen to show up, and Saul and David dealt with those differently. Two types of imperfections. Remember, the first ones were the unintentional. We call those mistakes. You're going to make them. You're going to make them because you're human. You're going to make them because you have a limit of knowledge. You have a limit of, uh, of understanding. You have a, a physical limitations. 
You just can't know everything. So you're going to make mistakes. And those mistakes will actually hurt people. Now, what do you do with those? Well, of course, we learned last week you just ask for forgiveness, you move on. Those are not the ones we're really talking about here. It's the intentional mistakes, the intentional imperfections. And we have a word for those, a very short word. It's not a very politically correct word, but it's the right word. What is that word for intentional imperfections, the things we do on purpose? We call them sin. Sit. I know that that's not popular to use that word today, but um, that's the word. It's sin. And it's those willful imperfections. It's the time we decide to be selfish. We don't want to go God's way in something. We want our way. We call it sin. Just as simple. Now, what do you do with those sins? Well, this is what we looked at. Remember this one? Don't spin your sin. First one was God's interest in direction, not perfection. Last week, don't spin your sin. Do you remember what happened? Saul is confronted with his sin, his intentional disobedience, and he covers it up. Oh, what? I didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't me. No, no. And then when he finally has to accept it, he did something wrong. It, well, it wasn't my fault. It was the soldier's fault. That's who it was. He tries to spin the whole thing. Now, David, on the other hand, when he's confronted with his sin, he says, I've sinned. There it is. See the difference? One guy says, no, no, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. He makes all the excuses. David says, Don't spin it. This is what Scripture says. On the other hand, if we admit our sins, make a clean breast of them, he won't let us down. He'll be true to himself. He'll forgive our sins and purge us of all our wrongdoing. When we, are, when we don't spin that sin, when instead what we do is we, are just, we just admit it, accept it, then it all goes away. And I taught you all about the name Carl. Carl, you're over on this side today. That's not, you know, it's kind of fun to have people move around on me. But now you were there like, is Carl Markley's probably still in the back. Is, but all right, there you go. I tried to, to teach you the word Carl. Carl, I, I promise you, this is the last time I'm going to borrow your name. Okay, now maybe in the rest of the series I may remind people of it, but other sermon series you're off the hook. I'll try to use some other name, all right? Here we go, Carl. And what does it stand for? Do you remember? It means this. First of all, you confess your sin. Then second of all, you accept the consequences. Third, you receive that forgiveness. And then, just like the song says in Frozen, you let it go. All right? The first thing you have to do is, con- I sinned. No, there's no excuse. We don't say, I sinned, but. We just say, I sinned. I blew it. I intentionally chose my own way. I was selfish. I did it. And there's going to be some consequences for that. I'm not going to try to get around them. I'm going to accept them. But what I'm also going to do is I'm going to receive from you, Father, the forgiveness because Jesus died to forgive me, and I don't have to carry it. And once I'm forgiven, I'm going to live like I've forgiven. The second thing is that sin no longer has any power over me. That sin is now gone. That sin is removed. And I don't deal with it any longer. Thank you for the forgiveness. So I let it go. There you go. Every time you hear that song, I don't want you to think about Disney. I don't want you to think about Frozen. I want you to think about your sin that's been forgiven. That, that is sin. All right? There we go. There's your review for where we are. Now, there's a whole other area that we want to compare David and Saul. Really important area. 
And it's this particular area right here. We call it worship. This is so important to God. The whole idea of worship is so important to him. He actually made it part of the second commandment. That's how important the idea of worship is. Take a look at this passage. Here's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything or above heaven or on earth, beneath the water below. There's the second commandment. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. The first one is, I'm the Lord your God. You have no gods before me. Second is, don't make any graven images and don't worship them. The second commandment says it's very important about who you worship, but even how you worship. Worship is so important. And what we're going to do today and next week as well, we're going to take a look and see how these two kings handle this idea of worship. And you know the problem is? Some in this room, many in this room, perhaps even most in this room, see worship the way Saul All right, to Saul, worship was a show. It was a performance. It was an event that you got ready for and you put together. And that was worship. Take a look at this passage. After he's been confronted with his sin, Saul finally gets to the point to say, I have sinned. But please honor me before the elders of my people, before Israel. Come back with me so I may worship the Lord your God. Now, do you see all the problems Saul had with worship right there? He didn't think he could worship God right there at that moment. Worship was something you had to go and do. When you got everybody together, that was worship. And then he says, oh, by the way, I'm going to worship the Lord. Who's God? His? Oh, it's yours. Wait a minute, Saul, you didn't get this at all. You think worship is some sort of event and it's a show. And what you do is you use it to cover up your sin. There are some people who come to church to cover up their sin. They're not here to celebrate everything that's happened in their life. They're here because of what happened in their life. They come here to make up for what they did. Not as an expression of how we've lived all week, but to kind of make up, man, I I was really bad this week. I better go to church. If that's how you think, well, shall name you Saul. Because that was the sin. It was a show. It was an event. David, on the other hand, worship was a way of life. It was not an event. It was not a show. It was a way of life. Let me show you a psalm that he wrote right here. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his. Now, he doesn't mention anything about, hey, on this particular day back then, that would have been on, on Friday night or Saturday. Come, He just says, let's do this. Let's live this. This is, this is how we live. Let me show you how he lived worship. All right? I've got to tell you a little story about it. At this point in time in the story, uh, David is a very old man. In fact, he's in bed, and he's dying. He can't even get out of bed. He's dying. He's old, and he's deciding who's going to be king after him. Now, there are, he has several sons, by the way, and many of them want to be king. And David is now going to choose who is going to be king to follow him. One of his sons 
decides that he wants to be king. Uh, was it Adonijah? Is that his name, as I recall? And he wants to be king. As a matter of fact, he wants to be king so much he claims it. And not only that, he throws a great big victory party for himself. I'm king. Problem was, that wasn't David's choice. David's choice was Solomon. Now, as this son who is celebrating what he thinks is his new crown is going through all of the celebration, he's told that David has chosen his brother, his half-brother, Solomon, to be king. Now, this is what Scripture says about that particular event. And then the man that's telling his son, Adonijah, about this says, and the king, in other words, David, once it was all done, once Solomon was established as king, once they'd had the big ceremony, once everybody said, okay, Solomon is going to be king, this was David's reaction. And the king, David, bowed in worship on his, what's that? said, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who allowed my eyes to see a successor to my throne today. David worshipped God in bed. And some of you are saying, you mean I didn't have to be here? I could have stayed in bed and worshipped God? What am I doing here? Yep. David didn't need an event or a place or a service. Worship God everywhere. And could you stay in bed and worship God this morning? Absolutely. And if you don't know that and if you don't understand that, don't fall into the trap. Here we go. Don't confuse a worship service with the service So far, God's interest in direction, not perfection. Don't spend your sin. Don't confuse a worship service with the service of worship. And in America, particularly today, boy, do we get this one wrong. That's what Saul did. Saul confused those two. He said a worship is when we get together in a place and I get to stand up and people get to hail me. And Okay, we'll worship your God, but it's an event. We'll plan for it. We'll, we'll, we'll plan the whole thing out and that'll be worship. Come with me and we'll go to worship. David said, you know, I can be bad in worship. I can worship anywhere, at any time, because he understood service of worship. Take a look at this passage. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. What is worship? Paul, in the book of Romans, just told us, didn't he? He just said, you know what it is? Your spiritual act of worship is offering yourselves to God. What is worship? Well, here's the key. Ready? Here is the key to understanding worship. We've gone over this a couple times before. Some of you are new, so you need to hear it. Some of us don't remember it. Some of us will be reminded. But we have to remember. What is worship? Here it is. This is the key. Do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Now, by the way, understanding worship, What it is, and doing it correctly, has incredible consequences, generational consequences. This is what God continues to say. He's a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generations for those that hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. He just said, now look, if 
you don't worship well and correctly and properly, it could have generational consequences for a long time. Well, how about this? Our children will learn who to worship and how to worship from us as parents. What we teach them. And if we teach them that worship is an event, a thing, something you prepare for, you go, and maybe you're happy with the worship or maybe you're displeased with the worship, critical of the worship, praising of the worship, children learn. They carry that to their children and their children. And the whole time, we've been following the model of salt. They're going to learn what worship is through us, for the most part. So what is that worship? Well, they say, well, here it is, because this is what God has told us time and time again. We're going to put it in different words right here. Worship is something we give to God and to God alone. You will worship me. Now, he didn't say, you will worship me more than others. He could have said, okay, as long as you give me all of, you know, most of your worship, that's fine. But you can still worship these other gods. He never said that. What he said was, you worship me and nothing else. Which means, worship whatever it is, is something we're going to give to God and God alone. Not something we give more to God. Something we only give. Give to God. Now, with that in mind, what is worship? Well, let me tell you first of all what worship is not. Let's do that. Worship is not singing. All right? Unfortunately, we have come in America to to equate the two. Worship and singing. And uh, if the singing and the songs are right and good, then I worship and I walk out feeling, yeah, I really worship God. But if the singing and the songs are not good, then I walk out disappointed because I didn't have a chance to worship because worship is really the singing portion of our, of our worship service, you see. And what we're doing now is the teaching time, but it's not really worship. Worship is when we stand up and we, we sing. That's what we do. And then, unfortunately, there's been a lot of struggle within the churches over this whole idea of songs and new songs versus old songs. And, and uh, some people don't like the new songs because it's, they're hard to sing or whatever. And, and churches have actually been ripped apart. We call it the worship wars. Hopefully we're getting past that kind of nonsense. But it's still there. It still exists. To be careful about the songs that we choose so we don't offend and all that other kind of stuff. And if you think this is new, not even close. Listen to this quote and see if you uh, resonate with this particular author because he's criticizing the new music. There are several reasons for opposing it. In other words, the new music that's out there. And he's trying to explain why he opposes it. One, is too new. Two, it's often worldly, even blasphemous. The new Christian music is not as pleasant as the more established side. Because there's so many new songs, you can't learn them all. I should probably be having people put their hands up whenever they resonate with me. It puts too much inf- inf- uh, inf- very much emphasis on instrumental. See, with the two word kind of juxtaposition, there's really going to be a problem. I can say juxtaposition, I just can't say emphasis. Okay, it's 
The instruments, yeah. But they're, they rely too much rather than on the godly lyrics. And then he goes on to say this new music creates disturbances, making people act indecently and disorderly. And by the way, the preceding generation got along without it. You don't need it. And it's a money-making scene. And some of these new music upstarts are ruining it. And if you resonate with that, you need to know that it was written in the year 1723. And it was written about the music of that incredibly blasphemous creator, Isaac Watts who wrote all those horrible songs like, I sing the mighty power of God, or our God and our help in ages past. Joy to the world! Isaac Watts, people hated it when it came out. Joy to the world. When I survey the wonders of consecration, or at the cross, at the cross, where I first knelt down, sing it, and the burdens of my heart rose. It was there by faith I received my new song, and now I am happy as all. Blasphemy. You a little upset with the new music? No. Join the crowd. It's been going on forever and 20, 30, 40 years from now. The young generation sitting here will be the old generation, and the young people will have all brand new music, and the older generation will be, well, I hate that stuff. Why can't we do all those old chords? Because that's the way we are as people. And the problem is we begin to confuse the singing with the worship. And if the singing is good and the songs are communal, then our worship is communal. You say, yeah, you can get me in the mood to worship Please don't ever say that. And if you have said it in the past, don't ever say it again. Because you know what that sounds like to God? Think of it from his point of view. God, when I'm in the mood, I'll worship you. When the, when the setting is just right, I'll give you my worship. But if I'm not in the mood, well, you forget it. That's what Saul was if you cannot worship God, even when you're not in the mood, you do not understand worship. And I'm dealing with Saul. All right? You okay out there? Doing all right? All right. Move on. <laughs> Sing, uh, worship is not singing. It's, it's a, it, and by the way, if you can't worship in absolute silence, then again, you don't Hopefully, between today and next week, you'll be able to. But if you can't worship in absolute 100% silence, you don't understand worship. All right, so it's not singing. Let me tell you another thing that it's not. It is not praise. Now, there's nothing. Oh, praise. We stand up and we lift our hands and we sway to that new music that the world is. Praise to God. Well, the problem is, remember that worship is something I give to God and God alone, Right? But I praise lots of things and lots of people. I'm supposed to. 
and, and worship isn't something that I give more to God. I can't say, well, I give God most of my praise, but I, I reserve some of my praise for my, my family, my church, my kids, my dog. You know, that's one of the ways that you train some sort of dog. You praise and all that. It can't be worship because worship is something I only give to God. And I praise lots and lots of other things as well. Which means worship isn't adoration. Any of you new parents out there? Take a look at your phone these days and see how many pictures. It's not selfies. If you're a teenager, it's all selfies. If you're a young parent, your phone is filled with little kids. Or uh, grandparents out there? You got a smartphone? Yeah, okay. I could take a look at you. I know. You adore your grandkids, don't you? Yes, you do. But you adore God more. But that's, okay, I understand that. But that's not what he said. He didn't say, give me more of worship than anything else. He said, give it only to me. That means adoration cannot be worship. It may be part of worship as I do this. But it isn't worship. Because I give it to other people as well. Which means also, it isn't adoration, it's not thanksgiving. Being thankful. I'm, it's just common courtesy, but even more than that, we should be genuinely thankful to so many people around us. I tip the waiters and the waitresses, but I still, when they bring me my meal, I look at them and I say, it's your job. No, I don't. I look at them and say what? I appreciate that. Therefore, thanksgiving can't be worship. I give it to strangers. I don't even know. They just brought me their meal, and I say, thank you. Now, that's true. I'm more thankful to God, but God didn't say. Worship is something I give him more of. He said it's something I only give to him. Only. All right. (sighs) Therefore, what is well, let's start first. And I say first because this is a two-parter. Today we're going to look at the first part. Next week we'll fill in the blanks about what worship is, the second part. But today for the time that's remaining for us, we're going to look at the first part of what worship really is. Here it is, right here. Worship is the voluntary humbling of ourselves before God. It has nothing to do with singing. It has nothing to do with anything else. It has nothing to do with adoration. It has nothing to do with vocation. It is the voluntary humbling of ourselves. Come, let us bow down in worship. And I will thank many people, and I will adore many people, and I will praise many people, and I will sing many songs, but I will bow only before God. I will kneel only before God. He is my Lord and my God. Now, you could take a gun and put it to my head, Or take a gun and put it to my family's head and say, if you don't kneel before me, I'm going to kill him. You know what? I'd kneel. I don't mean it. Just doing something so that you don't kill my family. But really, personally, inside, I only bow before God. I only kneel before the Lord Jesus Christ. Not my family. Not my kids, not my spouse, not my country, not my economy, not my possessions, not my government. I don't kneel before anybody. I'm equal with them all. None are superior, none are better, 
revealed only in four parts, which means worship is that voluntary, humbling, kneeling, bowing of ourselves before God. First of all, notice it is, it is voluntary. One day, Scripture tells us one day, every single person who has ever lived will bow before God. It'll be too late at that point. God's going to make them do it. Now we get to choose. Who do we bow before? Who do we kneel before? Who is ultimately important? It has to be voluntary. And it is a humbling and even Satan understands it now. Well, he understands what worship is. This is why he tried to get Jesus to do. Take a look at this right here. When he was trying to get Jesus to, to follow him, and he said this. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will what? Bow down and worship me. If you will sing me a song. If you'll praise my name. If you'll just adore me. Get on your knees before me. That's worship. And I'll give you all the kingdom of God. Which, by the way, was a lie. He didn't have it. So that's a whole different sermon. But anyway. Do you see? Even Satan understands what worship is. It has nothing to do with singing. Praying. Adoring. Praising. Thanking. Room. Praise team. Sunday morning. 1030. Location. Now, we try to come to here and, and worship. This is a worship service. So we're trying to set it up so that all of us have an opportunity to worship. But believe me, I think there will be several people walk out the door that haven't worshipped at all. You sang songs and you, you even gave some money, but you didn't worship because you didn't bow before God. You didn't humble yourself before the Lord God, your creator. You came and you enjoyed the music and you thought that was great and I feel uplifted and off you go. But you didn't worship. Bow. Humble yourself. That's what we try to do in this service is to uh, set it up so that it's maybe a little easier for us corporately to come together and as a church to bow and kneel and humble ourselves before God. Maybe this will help define what the difference is. The opposite of worship. What is the opposite of worship? Well, here it is. The opposite of worship is arrogance. The opposite of being humble. Arrogance. Simple. When our hearts are arrogant. When we think that we have accomplished so much. When we think that we are so great. We're not worshiping God. It's the opposite. God even warned us about this. When, when he was getting ready to send the children of Israel um, into the promised land, which we'll look tonight in the historical book. Um, he warns them. And he says, because he, he could see, and he, he knew what was going to happen. They're going to go into this land, and they're going to plant crops, and they're going to be very productive, and they're going to be at one time the most, the most uh, influential and, and richest nation on the planet, even though they're a little bitty nation. One, eventually, they're going to grow to be this incredible nation, and God sees it all clearly, and he knows what's going to happen as well. This is what he says. He says, start, he says, but remember me, okay? Remember where all this came from. Otherwise. When you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God. 
you may say to yourself, in my power and the strength of my hand, as I predict in verse 12, your mind, your arrogance, can't work it out. Let us hear how many songs we can sing. With an arrogant heart, can't worship you, can't help you. This is so important for the United States of America. Having worked a little over a year ago in that third world nation in Laos and seeing, I, I watched a man, and I've told you before, because we were able to give each of the students some money. This man created this great praise song because he was able to buy a sack of fertilizer to carry it home to his crop. And he had to carry it on his head about 60 miles to get home. But he was so excited to have a bag of fertilizer that you guys were able to buy him. Today's world in America, do we get all that excited about a bag of fertilizer? We have so much. And because we're so much, we're in such danger of thinking that um, we did it. It was our political structure. It's those Republicans or Democrats, they're the ones, and it's their philosophies that have done it. That's what it is. It's that American ingenuity. That's what it is. We are a superior people. Look at all we have done. And you say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hand which have produced all this wealth. We don't have it up here, but the very next phrase says, God says, but you've forgotten that it is I who have given you the ability to accumulate. If you're prosperous and wealthy, I give to you. Remember the big flap political? You didn't build that. Those of you who are political junkies will remember that well. Guess what? You'll give to me. But it wasn't the politics that built it. If you're smart enough to make a living, where do you think that intelligence came from? If you're strong enough to make a living, who gave you? If we are able to exploit the resources of this beautiful nation, who put those resources there in the first place so that we could turn it into a great nation? The arrogance of the heart that says, look at what we have. And the more we accomplish, the more we are educated, the more we have, the more likely we are to say, get to that point, our ability to worship begins to diminish. I don't care how many songs you sing, because this is what Scripture says. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. Not your wealth, not your political system, not your resources. Here's what we need to remember. This is something to remember every single day. Ready? Here we go. He is smarter than me. He is better than me. He owns me. But he also loves me. I am. Are you ready for what worship really comes down to? It's not in your notes. You can write it down or forget it, whatever you want to do. Here it is. Worship is when I walk into this building or I live my life or I, any place that I am and I say, God, you are the creator. I am a creation. And that's okay with me. I like that. I am happy with being a creation. 
need to take your place. Something else to, to remember as we get ready to wrap this up. It's a choice that we have to make every day. Sometimes, and again, Saul thought worship was an, an activity, an event that we come together, and sometimes we in America think that worship is when we come together on a Sunday morning, 10, 30, or 11, or a Saturday night, or whatever it is in, in your particular church or fellowship, and we come together and we have that worship service, and that is worship. But in fact, worship is that humbling of ourselves to be able to say, you are the creator, I'm the creation, you are God, I am not, and I do that every single solitary day of my life. For Saul, it was that act, that performance, an event. You did it every now and then. For David, it was a lifestyle. You could do it in bed. You could do it on your deathbed. You could do whatever. Because you just remember that he is Lord and you are not. Jesus described it this way. Actually, he's describing worship. Now, see, you probably never even saw it this way. Because you think, and many of us do, we think of worship as singing and praise and adoration and praise teams and all this other stuff. Jesus is describing worship when he says, and he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. He just said, here's what I want you to do. If you want to follow me, you're going to worship me every single day of your life. You're going to do that by denying yourself, taking up the cross. We'll talk about that next week. And follow me. That's what church is. Now, when we come into this place, should we express the worship of the week? Actually, we should. That's why we come. We're supposed to be worshiping every day. And we come here together to say, let's express together as a community, as a church, as a body, the worship that we gave God every single day of our lives. And as we thank him and plan for the worship, we will give to him every single day of this next week. That's what it's supposed to be. But we've turned it into Saul. See, it's simply this. This is worship. It's a choice to let God be Lord. Even if you believe that God is God and you believe that there is a God, that's different than saying God is Lord. Okay? You can say, yes, there is a God, but I don't want anything to do with him. Arrogant. No worship. Or we can say, yes, there is a God, and I'm going to let him be Lord of my life. He is better than me, and he is smarter than me, and he owns me, and he loves me. And it's a choice we make every day. And we worship him every day. That's why Joshua, just before he turns over leadership of the nation, presents a choice to the nation. Who are you going to serve? And this is what he says. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Now that is worship. And it isn't done just on Sunday mornings, and it's certainly not done with praise teams or music or videos or PowerPoints or lighting. It's a decision and a choice we make every day. I will worship God today. And I do that by making him Lord today. When you do that, that's worship. That's why you can come in this building and not do this. Next week, we're going to look at the second part. The cost of worship. In this country, we, uh, we have freedom of worship. Now, that don't mean it's free. I'll give you a little hint. Ready? You know how much worship is going to cost you? Any guess? Everything. Everything. 
Testament.